Blog Talk Radio. subject 
that has uh, much merit, and that's why I wanted David to also be on the show today to share this kind of breakthrough in the world of the use of oil in a way that could help to hopefully, God willing, make it safer in its in its application to many different areas of our current society as we move into a renewable realm. So with that said, I want to just add one more thing, that oil and water as a film will be shown at the upcoming second week of the Paradigm Shifts Music and Film Festival taking place at Baruch Center for the Performing Arts at 25th and Lexington. If you are anywhere in the tri-state area, this is certainly a festival to attend and this is a film to see. So more on that a little later. Now I want to welcome David Porritt to the show. David, welcome to A Better World. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you. Glad to have you. So first of all, uh, I'd love for you to just tell us the story of what was portrayed in the film Oil and Water and sort of who you were when you began this whole venture, and leading up to your current situation, what it is you're doing now. Absolutely. The film uh, begins when I was originally uh, in a, a middle schooler. I'm, I'm from Amherst, Massachusetts, um, a small town in western Massachusetts that's known for its liberal learning environment and progressive nature. And through growing up and being educated in the school system in Amherst, I came across what I believe were many compelling environmental and social issues. Uh, one of them was the struggles that were taking place in Ecuador uh, with indigenous peoples in their engagement regarding oil and gas development, which was very significant uh, in uh, the country of Ecuador. Uh, and when I was in middle school, I completed a project, uh, which was a simple research proposal uh, and paper about Ecuador. Uh, and it was through that project that I became fascinated with these issues that were taking place in Ecuador. And as a young 12-year-old, and specifically, what, I was really, what was that issue or issues? Uh, the specific issues had to do with the uh, claims from indigenous peoples and local communities surrounding the dumping of uh, oil and gas byproducts and more generally irresponsible oil and gas development uh, in Ecuador, both by the state, uh, Petro Ecuador, and uh, Texaco, which later became Chevron. So as, mm -hmm. uh, as a 12-year-old, I was exposed to these pretty significant issues. Uh, and although I didn't necessarily understand all of the nuances of the geopolitics surrounding the environmental and social impacts of oil, it really just stuck with me as an issue that I wanted to find solutions for. Uh, it was the inherent contrast, if you will, between black oil and the Amazon that really inspired me. Uh, and it was yeah. a lot of that. I don't think it would be unreasonable, a, David. I don't think it would be unreasonable to think that uh, you might not understand the larger geopolitical context of it all until you were at least 14. <laughs> yeah, it took me it took me a few years. <laughs> yes, um, and it was it was Still through, long before uh, the curve. My initial were your, exposure. 
were your uh, parents particularly, you know, we use the word liberal, I don't like the word, frankly, but uh, were they progressive in their thinking? Were they looking out for the common good? Yeah, I think, I would say, again, I, both of my parents are, again, at that time, were and, are, were and are involved in education, and I think that it was more their interest to make sure that I was exposed to a variety of different issues and enable me to process yes. them and come to my own conclusions. Uh, and I think Beautiful. that that's really, I think that was important. Um, what a healthy, exactly. I think that's this, a very healthy environment in which to be raised. I would, I so, think yeah, so, and I think continue. it definitely shaped, I think that yeah. it definitely shaped my view towards these issues. So uh, with exposure to this, the, these issues and these challenges in Ecuador, I began to want to get more involved, and it happened coincidentally that one of the attorneys who was litigating this case at the time, uh, he's no longer involved and hasn't been involved in a case for many years, but the original attorney, uh, his daughter happened to be my seventh grade English teacher. So it was through that introduction oh and through that connection that I got connected uh, to the issue, uh, and I began traveling to the region, and I began seeking to I really support the communities in any way that I could, given the injustice that I saw and I felt was happening. Right. Well, that that you say coincidence. Uh, I mean, it looks like it's a larger turn of the wheel for, of all people, that would be the father of your seventh grade homeroom teacher would be the the chief, you know, litigator on what has been one of the largest oil litigation cases in the world. So it's almost like it was uh yeah, it was a funny it was handmade it was for you. Fun, it was a funny yeah, it was a funny sense it was a funny coincidence and it was really for at that age as you know a 12, 13, 14 year old it was fundamental in shaping my world view and my understanding of these issues. And exactly. I had the opportunity to to engage in this case but interestingly, um, after being involved in it, I quickly realized that it was not the mechanism or the tool that I thought would be most important and most impactful in improving the oil and gas industry for the better and for really bringing greater rights and greater guarantees for local and indigenous peoples. And yes, it was yes, fascinating yes. because although I was exposed to it at such a young age, I really quickly realized that first I wanted to be more directly involved in local communities, given that lawsuits, although important, often are quite disconnected. Uh, and secondly, I wanted to find solutions that brought these different stakeholders, both the oil and gas industry, indigenous peoples, NGOs, governments, academics, all these groups that are traditionally in opposition to one another, I thought that we needed to find ways to build consensus and through that consensus create tools that really begin to independently measure how companies were performing. And that was really yes. the vision that I was exposed to and I created early on that was the foundation for Equitable Origin, which is the organization that I'm currently running. Now, what what age were you when that light bulb went off? It was so I I realized in 
probably ninth or tenth grade. Well, what was I would have been maybe fifteen or sixteen. I realized that litigation was not the road and not the strategy that I wanted to dedicate myself to. Um, yeah. After realizing that in uh, in you know as a ninth or tenth grader, I then shifted my work towards more policy. I thought that through creating greater regulation, that could be an an important tool. And then as I entered college as a freshman uh, while at Brown University, that's really when I started toying with the idea of voluntary certification. So voluntary certification, is examples of it are everything from fair trade certification. Um, Some of the listeners may be familiar with uh, the Forest Stewardship Council, which is for sustainable forestry, or even organic certification. So it was really mm-hmm. as a, as a early on in my college years that I said, why didn't there exist a system that could apply to the oil and gas industry in a similar way that other sectors had benefited from these same systems? And that was really the exactly. So Got it. I, I guess to answer, to answer your question, it was an evolution. It, start, yes, it, started, it started in high school, and then it really led into, uh, into college into college. You were still showing signs of being precocious, which I think is fabulous. Uh, I'd like to circle back to the (laughs) film because, uh, you know, um, your story, at least in part, is told there. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you and Hugo met and how you met met up with the filmmakers. What, What was that part of the journey? So I met Hugo, as you alluded to, um, on the Aguarico River. The, the, the Aguarico River is a tributary, as you said in your opening remarks, to the Amazon. Uh, I was literally waiting on the on the um, on, on, on the on the ridge that was that were on a ridge that was leading towards Aguarico, getting uh, seeking to get a ride uh, to head back uh, to Quito. You were basically uh, hitchhiking on the very, river. Is that right? You were hitchhiking on the river. I was. I was. I was doing exactly that. Yes, I was hitchhiking <laughs> on the river, and I was really waiting for a ride, and I got lucky. Uh, and Ugo was heading upriver uh, with a group, and he stopped to pick me up, which isn't always done. Uh, and I introduced myself to Ugo, yeah. and then uh, he, uh, we began speaking first in Spanish, and then we quickly, then he started telling me that he lived in Seattle, uh, and then we shifted to English, and it was really kind of a remarkable uh, encounter, uh, and that was the first time that I met Ugo, um, and that was when I was, I believe, a sophomore in college. Um, that would have been, I think, in 2009, and about, and it would have been in 2009, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right, right, uh, right, uh, fairly soon after that, if I recall correctly, I had been approached by Francine Moll, the filmmakers uh, uh, who who made Oil and Water. Um, and they had heard about my work on the lawsuit, but they also had heard about the work that I was doing uh, regarding the policy engagements, uh, as well as uh, some of my, uh, my my larger vision. And I think that they were really fascinated by the parallel stories uh, that you also mentioned in terms of Ulo's, his whole experience going up to the United States, and a similar aged kind of peer to Ugo, which was me, and my experience. Uh, in the United States, yet spending so much of my time in Ecuador. Exactly. So, are you the same age? 
Uh, Ugo is, let's see, I think we're less than a year apart. So I think, yeah, essentially okay. we're, this, we're peers. We're essentially the same age, yeah. Right. You're in effect. You're peers. You're exactly. That's just so funny. Yeah. One from Ecuador, from the Amazon, that's being affected, transported to Seattle and growing up there. And you who had the uh, awareness, education, and insight for his people and others and wanting to go and help in the way that you did and you envisioned. It's really, it's a remarkable story. In fact, I want to let the uh, audience know that in on Sunday, uh, March 29th at 3 p.m., it's going to be a matinee at the uh, 25th Street, Lexington Avenue, Baruch College, uh, Center for the Performing Arts downstairs. You can't miss it. That's when this is going to be uh, shown. And uh, Francine Strickwarda, who is one of the filmmakers, will be there on Skype, and uh, I'll be moderating a discussion between her and the audience. I think Hugo might be, or I should say in Espanol, Hugo will be with us as well. I'm not sure. And David, uh, you're not sure. You may or may not be there as well. Is that correct? You're not sure just yet. I may. I may. I, I'm still. Uh, I'm still finalizing uh, my plans, but it's a, it, it's, it's a possibility, but not certain. Right, sure, absolutely. You'll just just let me know. It would be a pleasure to have you. You're uh, an integral part of that film, and uh, I think you did a great job as a non-actor, but as a great activist. And uh, it really it really comes through. Your spirit, your intelligence, really shines through, and uh, perhaps more than anything, your intense commitment to uh, setting things right. Um, one of the things I would like to say, so anyway, just right before that, folks, uh, if you go to a abetterworld.tv, you can uh, click on Paradigm Shifts Film Festival and uh, just click through for information about tickets, attending, and this film will be preceded by uh, some live music, La Vita Duo, and it will be really interesting, a classical guitarist and soprano. It's a beautiful real touch that Nancy Rhodes, who is the founder of the film festival, brought in because of her uh, intense background in opera, music, and as a librettist, is always bringing together music and film, and also followed by, as I mentioned, a uh, discussion with the filmmaker, and I'm uh, moderating a lot of those uh, discussions. Uh, but let's come back here. Your intense commitment to setting things right, I was saying. So you uh, that shines through in the film. This, you know, just uh, strong-minded, big-hearted young man starting at age twelve. I love it. Um, and then you know, it follows your maturing process into something that is now becoming a bit of a robust uh, entity called Equitable Origin. And, of course, it is portrayed, this journey of yours, uh, in the film. And since the film has been completed at this point, uh, about a year and a half ago, I believe, something of that sort, you've continued. Tell us about what this really is. What is it that you have founded and what it is uh, you are doing? Equitable Origin was founded uh, in very early 2009. I was uh, 
a sophomore at Brown. I actually dropped out of Brown uh, my second semester of my sophomore year because I was really so inspired by the need to create standards for this industry. I saw what was happening in Latin America through my experiences in Ecuador and Colombia and Peru. I also saw the increased development activities that were taking place in the United States and Canada and other parts of the world. And I realized that the, the world and our global community really needed a set of clear environmental and social standards that could be followed and could be implemented in order to guarantee um, their environmental practices as well as uh, better social practices and the rights and guarantees of communities. So between 2009 and 2012... So in, in effect, what you were three, looking to do, David, what you were doing is bringing to the domain of oil, which is a very sticky subject, no pun intended, uh, the same type of mindset that has come to uh, what we refer to now as fair trade coffee or even a little you know, stickier uh, fair trade Diamonds, in other words, to bring the consciousness and environmental sensitivity to something that is otherwise known as highly exploitative and completely insensitive to the environment in which the drilling is taking place and to the people who live there. Yes, that's correct. And And I realize that we must move away from the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible given that global climate change is the issue of my generation, the the global issue, the largest and most significant global issue that we're facing. Yet, through my personal experiences, I saw what was happening on the ground. And what's happening on the ground was that oil and gas is continuing to be extracted. Projects are continuing to be developed. They're increasingly taking place in sensitive regions of the world where there are communities and there are sensitive ecosystems, and that's both in Latin America, but it's also in our backyards. Um, yeah. And because of that, we need to be pragmatic and realistic, such that as we transition away from our use of fossil fuels, and specifically oil and gas, as quickly as possible, we must also ensure that the oil and gas we are using, hopefully in decreasing amounts, is produced under the highest standards possible. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, you know, really meritorious. It really is. Uh, Most people who are environmentally minded um, and even technologically minded know where we are going. If you're a scientist or even a businessman, it's quite clear with any kind of true visionary entrepreneurial spirit knows that we're all moving rather rapidly into a world based on renewable energy sources, be they solar, wind, geothermal, hydropower, and uh, more are actually coming online. It's a very exciting time for the renewable energy industry. And as you, you know, well point out, uh, that's not happening tomorrow, and it's not going to happen next year, and it might not even happen in the next decade 100%. It probably won't be because most people don't recognize just how deeply entrenched the oil industry is. And if you look on par at what is causing most of the uh, greenhouse gas damage, um, 
sounds funny because I'm a diehard environmentalist. It's not from fossil fuel. It's largely from the cattle industry and the release of methane. And one, uh, it's, it's a complex thing, and I want to hear you unpack it from your view. But, uh, you know, the more everything is heating up, the more melting there's taking place in the uh, two poles, and that's leading to even the uncovering of more methane pockets, especially up in Siberia, etc. So these are the larger causes of, and this doesn't justify at all continuing on with uh, fossil fuel, not at all. People can really register that. But nonetheless, reality being what it is, we have to take a good, long, serious, impartial look at the primary causes of global warming. And I'd love to hear you comment on those. On that. So, the, again, as you point out, there's numerous uh, contributors to global climate change. Um, the fossil fuel industry, and specifically the burning of oil and gas for both light transportation and heavy transportation, is a piece of that. As you mentioned, there's also other pieces to that. Um, my my vision and my interest is specifically in finding ways to improve energy production. Um, I came to the pragmatic conclusion I can't fix every problem, uh, and I felt as though this was an issue, and this was... I don't know. You're fairly young. You might be able to. (laughs) This was an issue, and this was a set of challenges that needed to be addressed. And an interesting thing that I want to point out is, yes, it's oil and gas, yet and, and 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 yes, it's the impact associated with oil and gas. Yet, if you look at renewable energy, for example, solar, wind, hydroelectric, to not consider the local level impacts of the energy production of those sectors is also naive, because the development of renewable energies also has impacts. And my interest in equitable origins interest is first and foremost mitigating the impacts of oil and gas as we make this transition, but also as the world evolves away from oil and gas, taking our experiences and taking our standards and making sure that those same environmental and social standards are also applied to these new sources of energy development, which will inevitably be much less reliant on fossil fuels. So I guess just to reflect back on the film a little bit, I think the film shows my it's a story of my personal coming of age and my personal evolution. But it's, and, and it yes. shows my thinking, how I evolved from, you know, being very anti-industry, you could say, or maybe anti-oil, to really realizing that we need to take a pragmatic approach because we are all users of oil and gas. We're all users of end sources. And we need to find ways to engage with an industry which we're reliant on. So just as I personally have evolved and just as the world is evolving, it's also important that equitable origin evolves. So I get my, my yes. point here is that I'm certain in, 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 in the coming years, as, as in the coming years and the coming decades, as there shifts energy use, uh, it is my hope that equitable origins domain isn't specifically fossil fuels, but also we can implement our expertise in these other areas. Because I'm oh, sure exactly. that a lot no, of the you made the point loud that exist in oil and gas. 
Yeah. You made the point well, and I think that's uh, really very laudable again. I mean, so it's clear that you're expanding uh, equitable origins uh, position to relate to all energy production, no matter what the the vehicle. And I, I you know, again, you're on to something. Uh, it is true there is impact, environmental impact. There's uh, noise impact from wind, for instance. There's aesthetic impact from wind farms. You know, it goes on and on. Uh, it's nothing quite like oil and gas and fracking, but it's uh, it's definitely got to be subject to standards the way you're laying that out to let everybody know you are listening to a better world with mitchell j rabin we're on every wednesday at 6 p.m eastern daylight time now and you can i know most listen in archive and that's all well and good make sure to take this and forward this on to others who you think would uh benefit from it if you don't yet get our newsletter make sure to go to triple w dot abetterworld.tv it's a free newsletter and it uh, describes the several shows I do I host and produce every week from television on Monday evenings at 7 here in the Big Apple in Manhattan can also be viewed online through the same website abetterworld.tv Tuesday afternoons I'm aggressive film hour where I select a film and feature it for the hour and speak usually with either experts or the filmmaker, him or herself, about the subject of the film, which uh, frequently relate to different environmental issues, social issues uh, that we are facing as a species, and really seek to unpack and both diagnose and then provide workable, real solutions that everyone can get involved in in one way or another. So uh, make sure to become part of a better world family and community. We welcome you all. So today we're going to continue now with David Poritz, who is the founder and president of Equitable Origin, who was one of the two main storytellers of the film uh, Oil and Water that we've been talking about and referencing through this uh, this dialogue and you can see this film on Sunday in Manhattan matinee at the Paradigm Shifts uh, Music and Film Festival. Just go to again to abetterworld.tv right on the home page it says Paradigm Shifts it's a powerful, wonderful uh, film festival that really highlights these independent filmmakers work and it's um, in a sense um, enhanced and ensconced by music, because its founder, Nancy Rhodes, is a librettist, a musician, and has been involved in the world of music and opera for decades. <clears throat> so really, it's a cultural experience, <clears throat> and Oil and Water is one of those exceptional films that are in the program. So this Sunday, and I'll be there to speak with the filmmaker and with the audience after we see the film. So, David Poritz, I am impressed with uh, this space that you have decided to open up through a deep heart connection um, to the Amazon rainforest and the damage that you uh, witnessed firsthand, up close and personal, as a very young man when you went down there originally. You learned Spanish. 
you got kind of your hands into the soil. You saw what the damage can be from oil exploitation, especially of such uh, eco-diverse, biodiverse, and sensitive areas as that region of the Amazon. And you recognize fully the life-threatening, species-threatening, sentient life-threatening uh, potential if this kind of drilling goes unchecked, which it largely has, and it has led to enormous lawsuits at incredible expense and stress um, and time consumption of the parties involved, I think you very rightly see that it is not an answer in itself, but an equitable uh all people at the table, let's talk, let's work it out so everyone can win. Tude and perspective, and if you will, policy, is really the rational, intelligent approach. And I, I laud you for stepping in as an environmentalist in so many respects to broker these kinds of deals. Tell our audience, what is it that you're facing now that you're really down deep in this space? So the issue of oil and gas is is incredibly challenging. And one of the reasons it's challenging is because it's highly conflicted in nature, uh, and although it is something that we all use, and although it is something that we are all reliant on, at the same time, I found from my experiences that few people want to do things to improve its production. So in the sense, the pragmatism that Equitable Origin is bringing to the issue uh, often is hard for people to accept, given the reality of global climate change. Um, and I think specifically that what? Know, so specifically, for a long time, you know, getting groups to publicly endorse what we do, whether that's different NGOs or other groups, has been challenging. Uh, and one of the reasons it's been challenging is because it is an issue that isn't directly linked to climate change. It's very much linked to local-level impacts. And I think that one of the great uh, late early, uh, early successes that we've had is uh, in August uh, of, this, of 2014, uh, so late last summer, we were successful in certifying our first, um, our first large oil field in Colombia, uh, which is made up of two sites, the Pacific, the Kifa and the Rubiales which is operated by a Canadian company called Pacific Rubiales. And that production accounts for 25% of Colombia's national output. So we were able to show the world that, one, our systems are rigorous. Uh, they can actually be implement, implemented um, economically viable uh, through by an yep. operator, and they, result in real, and they result in real impacts. So the fact that we've had proof of concept uh, and the fact that we have real community support uh, and the fact that operators are able to see what we're doing has made a huge difference, and it's really helping us overcome a lot of the skepticism in, that we face in the early days. So this first yeah. certification is, is quite important, and we're starting huge. to get calls, and we're, starting to, and we're really starting to get attention. And I would just add to that that coupled with that, um, we just released um, in March um, – are draft standards for uh, fracking, for shale development, because we wanted to take our extensive six-plus years of experience 
working in the Andes Amazon region and begin to apply our expertise to natural gas development in the United States. So we mm. realized that, and I realized that we had what I believe was a fundamental responsibility to find ways to improve the current production practices that are taking place in the United States, given the conflicted nature of them. Uh, so again, once again, we're getting involved in issues that are necessary, but at the same time challenging uh, and hard often for people to fully get behind because of their sticky nature, if you will. Yes, right, right. You know, uh, there's also a distinction, and I'd like to hear you elaborate on this, uh, that's fairly well known between uh, oil drilling and gas shale harvesting. There are different technologies involved, and some would argue that the drilling has the opportunity when going straight down vertically to actually have less of an environmentally uh, detrimental impact on what's at the surface when followed in uh, you know, a very rigorous way. The technology exists. When you're doing what's called horizontal drilling, there's a chance for much more leakage and the use of much harsher chemicals. And maybe, and this I'm not sure of, you can help clarify, uh, the use of exceeding amounts of water. So could you clarify these distinctions and tell me if that accords with what you understand or not? So there's many different perspectives on the impacts associated with uh, hydraulic fracturing or sh the development of shale oil and gas. The key issues traditionally have been wastewater management and disposal, partially because so much water, as you mentioned, is needed to frack wells uh, that the waste or the byproduct is also significant. So a major issue that we see is how much water is being used and what's being done with that water once it's come in contact uh, with hydrocarbons. The second issue, um, as you mentioned, has been really chemical disclosure. Uh, there's been a lot of concern regarding what chemicals are being used and how companies are actually disclosing them. Mm -hmm. Linked to that, there's been concerns regarding what they call well integrity. So one of the major, one of the major worries of society is um, as uh, as projects are developed, uh, wells are drilled, and there can actually be cracking in the wells, which in themselves, which can lead to uh, leakages uh, into water and uh, in, into, into water systems, which has effects on into the water, water table, right? For communities, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So those, so uh, you, may, uh, if the, many of the uh, listeners may be aware that. Uh, just just a few days ago, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, which is part of the um, which is a part, part of the Department of Interior, released for the first time a rule that regulated uh, these these key areas. So wastewater management, as I mentioned, well integrity and chemical disclosure. Mm -hmm. So those are key issues. But there's another set of issues which weren't included in that rule, uh, which really is on the social side of things. So um, our, our standard that we've just released for public comment 
builds off of the work that the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, has done and through their research, but also goes further, we believe, into issues of human rights and social impact in community development, for example, the rights of indigenous peoples, uh, fair labor and working conditions, and even the whole life cycle of a project. So our mm -hmm. view is we need to be looking at the key issues of water and well integrity and chemical disclosure, but we also need to incorporate a holistic approach that also addresses how people are affected. Um, yes. So this is our push into this issue, which is incredibly conflicted. Uh, it's, it's, it's very polarized, uh, but we believe there's a middle ground that's needed in the space uh, as development, if development continues and when it does. Yeah, yeah. So what distinction I made between the two, while we agree that uh, – oil and gas exploration are things that we want to become part of our past as soon as possible. It is, as we both are saying, a sticky issue, and we realize that we have a society whose engine runs on oil uh, just flat out, uh, despite the other many wonderful initiatives that uh, many of us are part of or others witnessing the development of, such as electric vehicles, uh, such as hydrogen-based cars, such as water-based cars, such as, uh, you know, the other renewables that we were discussing. You are taking on something that I, I, I just have to say I think is awesomely laudable. And at the same time, I'm wondering, is there always a middle ground when it comes to something like fracking, which has been so well proven, and I've done numerous shows on the subject with leading scientists from Cornell and elsewhere, as well as politicians who were dead set against it unless it's proven safe and it's never been proven safe and so therefore thankfully from my point of view in New York State uh, Governor Cuomo voted against it at the end of the day uh, at least so far uh, and many of us are very overjoyed about that uh, but based on what I know about fracking it looks like there is no safe way to go about it and to manage um, the uh, the entire process from beginning to end. There may be some inroads made with wastewater management. Surely there are some very creative ways, and I'm familiar with them, for dealing with cleaning up wastewater. But taken as a holistic package, uh, maybe there really isn't a way that justifies the continuation of fracking. So is your question in terms of where I stand on that, uh, what is my perspective yeah. on, that, on that issue? Yes. Yes. So I think, so I think there, are, um, there are what we call no-go issues uh, in the oil and gas industry. Um, I think, first of all, I would argue that uh, – a challenge that is even more significant and more conflicted than 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 sh shale or fracking is tar sand development, where we haven't yet developed standards, mm -hmm. partially because we believe the impacts are so significant. Um, yes. Rather, you know, we would agree. Again, my my perspective is 
until the United States government, you know, uh, determines that it is unsafe altogether and not possible to be done in a way that uh, does not harm communities. And as long as it continues to go forward and develop in terms of development, there has to be systems. So I'm looking at it from a little bit higher level, which is as these activities continue, there's so much room, there's dramatic room for improvement. And there's dramatic room for mitigation in terms of the risks that it could be, yes, one perspective could be to reject it altogether. But I think that the scope of it and the factors that are driving it necessitate the need for these better practices. Um, and as, you know, our role is in no way to support new development. It's not to be a driver for new shale development or new fracking development. It is a tool that needs to exist such that when projects happen and when communities are near those projects and other actors are near those projects, there needs to be a reference point. Arena, that reference point needs to be through a set of standards. So um, we may reach the conclusion that fracking is holistically an activity that shouldn't happen. I do not believe that there's consensus yet on that, and I think if there was, I think the government would take a stronger stand on it. Um, so therefore, as it's happening, we need to do something about it. We shouldn't support it. I, However, we need yeah. to prove that it's improved. I would, I would question the integrity of the government making sound decisions on that subject. I don't think they are the higher authority in this situation. I think people like yourself on the ground with other scientists um, and ecologists uh, and oil industry scientists who uh, are really looking at it objectively instead of who's paying their uh, salary can really come up with the more uh, ennobled uh, point of view on that subject. But I want to ask this question, David. As you know, the volume of water be available in states across just this United States is becoming, in most cases, less and less. In town, it is already happening where there is an, a shale oil company, a fracking company that comes in and pays the town X amount of dollars for the right to frack. And there is Y amount of water available for all purposes from uh, bathing and drinking to mowing lawns, I'm, I'm sorry, watering lawns, uh, washing cars, other industrial applications, and fracking. And it is already happening that there is a face-off and a showdown between the fracking company and the other very fundamental uses of water, including drinking water. What would you say to those situations? This is not theoretical. You know that. This is already happening. Yeah, look... I I think, first of all, a very interesting statistic is um, in 2014 showed that more than 15 million Americans live within a mile of a fracking well. Uh, that was, you know, specifically drilled after 2010. A lot of those areas, as you mentioned, are areas where there's, um, you know, significant water issues. Um, I think that, you know, we 
this is a reality that we're facing. These are huge challenges regarding water usage. Uh, it's an industrial activity that is not a, it, it, that is not safe. Yet, this is a tool that needs to that, that needs to exist so that communities, if they decide to develop a resource, uh, and if there's a company that's in the location, are doing something about it. So, you know, I guess that's specifically how I guess you know th th that's how I'd answer it is you know the scope of the impacts is so significant. There's so many people being affected by it that we must have standards that address these impacts that span all these issues, including minimizing the use of water as it's taking place. Truly, I understand. Let's just turn for a moment to this uh, already closed deal, which I think is fabulous, that you referenced in Colombia. Could you outline for our audience what the protections are for the indigenous people in the region, and also, are they sharing in any of the revenue stream? So the standard is broken up into six different principles. One of the key principles is uh, community uh, community benefit and community engagement. So that means, first and foremost, that the communities that were in and around the development sites wanted the site to be developed. Uh, there's this concept called free prior and informed consent. It basically means that there's consent from the community. So in the case of Columbia, there's strong consent. The community is in support of the development of the project. Often they are employed economically in the activities in and around the development of that project. And the company is investing in sustainable uh, activities, creation of micro-businesses, the creation of greater education, uh, such that the communities, when the oil is no longer there, are really left off in a better way than uh, they were found. And I think that the, mm -hmm. I think the case of Colombia and the case of Pacific Realis is a good example of that. One of the tr one mm -hmm. one of the really sad realities of resource development is so often we see communities 10, 15, 30 years after an oil project is gone are so much worse off than they were before the project, and that yes. shouldn't be the case. Uh, and that doesn't need to, and that doesn't need to be the case. And our standards really ensure that there are programs and systems in place that ensure that the community is benefiting during uh, and after uh, a project uh, happens and, and and once it's over, uh, and leaves a legacy that is positive for uh, for that region. So that's in addition to all the environmental safeguards across air, water, and soil quality biodiversity impacts and all those sort of things that are often concerns associated with a project. So it's both does the does does the key want the project to happen? Does the project benefit the community economically work and empowerment? And are the traditional environmental uh, concerns really being addressed in the highest in, in, in the highest possible way? No, I, I hear you. I think it's it's really very very admirable. It's such a a fine tightrope that you're walking here on so many way levels, uh, ideologically, just on and on. It's really it's very sticky and thorny at the same time. And I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, you know, uh, I recall that in Alaska there was a profit-sharing arrangement 
and I think that's been duplicated. You would probably know more about it than I would um, in different parts of the world where when the regions are engaged for oil pipelines and drilling, the locals are part of the revenue stream. And um, yes, there's great conscientiousness around the uh, care of making the drilling process as eco-sensitive and friendly as possible. Uh, so there have been fairly strict standards, the higher the better, as you're indicating. And though on a purely economic basis, they feel that this is their land and they want to enjoy and reap some of the benefits of the you know, high price and the lucrativeness of the business. And it's worked out, as far as I know, very, very well. I'm wondering if you're using any of that in your model. So economic debt sharing is something that's very, again, it's, it's often a, it's a sovereign issue that is that really is different across many different areas. So if you go to different countries or different places on Earth, uh, you find very different realities, and it's usually it's most often not uh, dictated by governmental policy. Uh, and our system is a site-specific certification that's so applied not to a company but to their specific site. So our standard does not mandate a certain percentage of profit sharing. It really looks at how the project itself benefits the community in the long run and how the operator is investing specifically in community development. So one of those issues is a more macro policy level, and where we're focused on is really local-level, site-level development impacts and benefits. Um, so, yes, a lot of, you know, Colombia is progressive in these areas. There are, there are specific economic benefit-sharing agreements that are, you know, that, that are negotiated uh, between communities and the government and need to be approved by, uh, you know, by the government at a very high level. And then there are local-level benefits, such as how the company engages with the community, how the community is employed in development, how the company is investing in local schools or is investing in microenterprises. So there's two different, I guess, economic levels, and our focus, given the specific nature, is the second. Yes, I understand. I understand. In any event, it's uh, it's a very, no pun intended, fluid idea, and if you want greater cooperation, it should also be understood that one of the impacts that can be very useful and beneficial for the community on a micro level is that they share in some of the proceeds. I know you've addressed that on many levels. I know that's part of it, yeah. but it should be kind yeah. of obvious it's, that, look, uh, yeah. Re re revenue sharing is a complex issue. We, again, Equitable Origin engages in certain activities. For example, we're uh, – part of an initiative called the Community Benefit Sharing Plan, the PBC Initiative in Columbia, and our mm -hmm. standards are actually applied uh, to the auditing process for this community benefit sharing because Columbia has certain requirements uh, that yes. mandate percentage, percentage benefits, and our standards are becoming a benchmark for monitoring those activities. So, again, we're, we're getting involved in that in a pretty big way, uh, but as you know, yep. these are political, sticky issues that, uh, you know, that often are not clear-cut answers to.
Exactly. I understand. And the other reason I'm kind of focusing on this, because even though you're seeking to uh, keep focused on specific aspects where you refer to those six points or six principles, which I think is also very laudable, at the same time, you are going to increasingly be wielding a fair amount of authority and power in these micro contexts, site-specific contexts, that are going to have macro implications. So that's the other reason I wanted to kind of bring that up, because long-term, your voice, even though you're keeping, you're doing what you can to keep it related to discrete aspects of the whole, is going to become bigger and bigger. And I, I think that's a good thing because the people, your team, are obviously people who deeply care about the environment and the protection of the ecosystems and seeking to bring the oil companies into resonance with that. And I think it's... Uh, you know, as I've said several times, I think it's very laudable. I'm curious, in, in uh, closing here, what, who is it that is funding this venture? I doubt that it would be the oil companies. I think it's good that it's not because they're so accustomed to um, bending influence, shaping influence of the United States government. I mean, they are one of the main owners of Congress. So uh, who is it that is behind funding your company? I don't mean by name. I mean you, who, what's the yeah. profile? Yeah, so the, uh, so the first thing I think should be mentioned, which you also alluded to, is we do not accept any money from the oil and gas industry, both because from a perceived conflict of interest and a real conflict of interest. Uh, so we, our money comes from social impact investors, so they're individuals uh, who are unaffiliated with the oil and gas industry who really want to put their money to work to for innovative enterprises that can really help in social change. Uh, and we found a lot of appetite from individuals who really see and share our vision for improving the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that's uh, is there any kind of just curious, is there any kind of um, monetary return to them, or is it the joy of um, saving the earth and preserving her? Um, I'm just trying to look at it from every practical and ideological point of view. Yeah, it's a, so it's a, a, a Equal Origin is a, is a B Corporation. I don't know if you've come across yes. B Corporation. B Corporation. Of course I have, but please explain it to the audience. If you would take a moment, that would sure. be great. Uh, sure. So uh, B Corporations are, uh, was an initiative uh, that was launched uh, I believe in between 2007 and 2008, which sought to create a special distinction for companies that are truly operating in a socially responsible way. And one of the key components that drive B Corporations are the fact that these are entities that don't only respond to their shareholders, but also respond to non-shareholder stakeholders, so people who aren't necessarily owners of a company, but are affected by the activities of that enterprise. Uh, And Equitable Origin is the first certified B Corporation um, that works in and around the oil and gas industry, Um, and it drives really everything that we do. 
Uh, so we have uh, social impact investors who are interested in uh, not exclusively donating the money but receiving uh, a modest return in exchange for high environmental and social outcomes. So it's a new mm-hmm. breed, and I think it's a really interesting breed of investors who are saying, yes. I will sacrifice return on my money because I want social impact. And the way that I, the way that I actually measure my return is through a mixture of both. Yes. That's beautiful. The fact is, I, and I don't, I mean, I know we use money as the common denominator of value, and that has benefits and uh, disadvantages. Um, it's sort of a quantification of everything. Uh, but the reality is that there is even a monetary uh, benefit in as far as uh, overall national or international health care costs could drop. Um, productivity in other sectors could increase. Uh, there are any number of other variables that get activated because of safety conditions. It, you know, it could be that um, less war is waged, um, less oppression of of people in places like Nigeria as an example, or of course Latin America. You know, there are so many other benefits uh, that accrue from what you're doing, David, that um, I could understand the mentality of such a social impact investor and, uh, and, and does have a dollar value at the end of the day, which might be, you know, lower or sustained taxes without them going up as much as they might have to cover some of the uh, cleanup costs or what have you, you know, so... I feel like I, I understand where you're coming from and where they're coming from, and I, I really do agree that there is a new, a new brand of investor that's rising up that understands the larger holistic picture of what investment means and what return means, and it includes but is not by any means limited to only this thing called money. So... Uh, in closing, do you want to share with our audience some last words? I appreciate the opportunity uh, to uh, have this vibrant discussion, and I really uh, was uh, really energized by both your support of what we're doing but also your uh, cautious skepticism, which I think is very healthy. And I think that that reflects that these are challenging issues that have clear answers. And I think as we begin to address these challenges as a society, we need to come up with different tools. And at Equitable Origin, we're very, very aware that our standards are not the solution to all these issues, but we think that having them in place will really bring an important positive benefit. It is our hope that others will build off of our standards and create other tools as well that help address these issues. And I think we can, we can find ways to work together and find ways to build off different initiatives. That's how we're going to solve these challenges. So uh, I would I would also suggest that people should see the film. I think it's um, a well-made documentary that I think brings up a lot of uh, really fascinating questions. So thank you again for the opportunity to uh, to speak to your sh- speak on your show. And I uh, welcome anyone to please contact me if they have any questions. Absolutely. And your website is. Our website is equitableorigin.com, and we can be, uh, you can email us at contact at equitableorigin.com. 
Wonderful, wonderful. David Poritz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about these very vital, important subjects to both you, me, and our audience, and audiences around the world, and for what you're doing. It's courageous. It's noble. I love that you began very early in your life, and you're continuing with it straight through. So God bless you. Keep up the good work, and I'll speak with you very soon. Good night. Thank you. Sure. Good night now. David Poritz, the uh, founder and president of Equitable Origin, uh, essentially uh, a fair trade organization, a B corporation, that is uh, establishing criteria for the safe, eco-sensitive, friendly uh, exploration of oil and gas all over the world. And who would have thunk it while so many of us are driving so fast toward the establishment of a new economy around renewable resources. And uh, it has to be understood that that is not the be-all, end-all, end all, that that phrase renewable and sustainable just carry the day. He made the point very well early on that those technologies need the scrutiny of others as well because uh, it's important to preserve the landscape aesthetically. It's important to preserve the sound landscape, the audio landscape, and there have been uh, the bird landscape. These are some of the problems that have shown up with uh, wind turbines in themselves. So he made it clear that equitable origin is embracing all energy production. And uh, again, I just think he's really on to something really good. And even though I am personally slash professionally involved in a few different initiatives regarding uh, um, electric vehicles and uh, helping, having helped to start a company that is really beginning to take a lead position in that domain and uh, working in hydropower projects as well as connected to solar. These industries also need regulation, and uh, they need regulation because people too often put profit before purpose and before people and before earth. And these issues must unfortunately be regulated. I am very much of the notion, libertarian style, that if we were to self-regulate and self-govern, we would not need external. But as a species, we're not showing this level of intelligence, rational thinking, or restraint. So if it doesn't show up inside, it's going to show up outside. And clearly, Equitable Origin is one of those companies uh, that is very, very courageously and nobly helping to regulate an industry that 
has always treated the entire planet like the Wild West. So uh, my hat off, truly, to David Poritz and to uh, his colleagues in the company, as well as to the social impact investors that have stood up to the plate uh, to support this noble activity. So uh, I want to just mention again that the film Oil and Water, through which I originally met David, uh, is going to be shown, screened, um, through the Paradigm Shifts Music and Film Festival this coming Sunday at 3 p.m. at 55 Lexington Avenue at 25th and Lexington. Just go in through the uh, main uh, main entry to Baruch College, and it's a little to the right downstairs, easy to follow, and it's very worthwhile. If you go to a betterworld.tv, you will uh, be able to access all the information about getting tickets and the other films. Older Than America is coming up. That will also be this coming weekend. Um, I think that's Friday night, and it's just one film after another, closing with two films, a double feature, Growing Cities, which is about a couple of young guys who grabbed their car and a camera and drove around the country uh, making uh, interviews with urban farmers. And the last one is about uh, urban farming in Brooklyn in particular, Brooklyn, New York. So you'll want to really tune into that as well. So uh, again, go to a betterworld.tv. I also want to let you know and make a formal announcement that a Better World Foundation Unlimited Inc. just became a full-fledged IRS um, granted 501c3 nonprofit just two days ago. So I want to encourage you all to step up and make some socially impactful investment donation to a better world because we can now offer you back a tax deduction for any amount, whether it's $100, $1,000, or 10000 or 100000 any of the above are wholly welcomed and accepted and are all to be used for growing our media platform for these kinds of interviews and shows and dialogues and discussions with wonderful, intelligent people, visionaries like David Poritz, who are some young, some not, who are nonetheless doing awesome things across our country, across our planet, to create a level of sustainability, harmony, bring everyone to the table, and let's hammer out the issues so this uh, global warming, climate change debacle on our hands, so anthropogenically generated, is not runaway but can be tempered, modified, mitigated, and controlled in large measure. Not complete. Nature is not here to be uh, controlled, but there's a lot that can be done on so many levels to mitigate this madness that has become the norm. 
And you know that a better world is wholly committed to that kind of deep outcome and creating the educational context for all people, not just the choir, but for all people to get the message. We use our media platform. We use humor. We use science and a deep spiritual connection from the heart, mind, and soul to Mother Earth to help generate right action in what I have been referring to for many years as sacred stewardship. So join us. Get onto the newsletter if you don't get it yet already and become a donor as well to a better world's high-minded, big-hearted cause. We love your participation on so many levels. I also appreciate your feedback at mjr at abetterworld.net mjr at abetterworld.net It's wonderful to hear from you. I love your comments and suggestions. So on that note, I want to just thank you all, remind you of the Paradigm Shifts uh, Music and Film Festival that is being produced by Encompass New Opera Theater, and Nancy Rhodes is at the helm, and it's wonderful. I'll be there. Look forward to seeing you all this week and next. Bye-bye.